This sermon was recorded at the Church of Christ, Northwest Arkansas. We are Christians seeking to worship God in spirit and in truth, according to the New Testament. Come worship with us Sunday mornings at 1030 at 1708 Elm Springs Road in Springdale, Arkansas. It's a, it's a pleasure to be with you all this morning, excited for the study. This is something that's been on my mind uh, for quite some time. I've been thinking about this for a little while and um, just seeing the ways that this, this idea is, is prevalent in the religious world right now. There's a concept that is often touted, and it's been this way for hundreds of years. This has gone on for, for a very, very long time, uh, you know, dating back to 15th century, even before, um, and we'll get into some of the roots of it, but there's a concept that is taught in the religious world, Christianity specifically, <clears throat> that says there is nothing you can do. And so this concept is very, very prevalent, and actually I think it's a very dangerous concept, um, and I'll explain why in just a moment. If, so if you'll, um, you know, it's uncomfortable when we think about that, when we hear that, but if, if you stay with me through the study, I think you'll, you'll see what the biblical perspective offers for us, and, and, and I'll give you reasons why I feel like this is not uh, as solid of an idea. The, the idea goes something like this. You are so sinful and so weak that you are incapable of any action or doing any work, any, any action at all, to save yourself. And it must be God that does it for you. There's also another idea, a layer in, in that that has developed, and it's there's nothing that you can do to earn God's favor or His love. You can't earn them because, in fact, you already have God's favor, you already have His love, and there's nothing you can do or, or not do that will change that. Okay? And then another layer to this idea is that there's nothing you can do that will make God love you more or love you less. These are really common phrases. These are really common things that are being taught in all kinds of churches, all kinds of, of things online. I, I was doing some research on this, and I mean, I was just overwhelmed with the amount of information there was and blog authors and articles and books that are written on this topic to, to, really, to really propel this idea that there is nothing you can do. And these are just some of the ways that it's worded there's a lot, a lot of other ways that it comes out. And there's something that has, there's things that have come out of that. There's outcomes from this type of idea and this type of doctrine. Now, I want to say I don't think that they were intended uh, by those who kind of evolved to this point, this idea. I don't, I don't think it was intentional. And they were trying to do something that was, um, you know, something that was counter to, to uh, what the scriptures show us, but I think that's ultimately what, where we're at as far as where we're at today. It sounds good and pleasant, right? It sounds really good to, to think that, okay, well, there's nothing at all, and God's going to love you no matter what. You can do whatever, and that's kind of what, what it leads to. You can kind of do whatever you want. It's not going to change God's love for you. Now, there are some truths in there, sprinkled in there. Absolutely, it has to be God that saves us. Absolutely or God has an unconditional, uh, an aspect of his love is unconditional in the fact that he offers it and it's open to all and it's there and it's, it's freely given. Absolutely. Um, you know, we can think about that with parents and children, like we're going to love our, our kids, right? And so we often map that onto God and say, okay, he, he operates that same way. However, there's limits to that. Um, even, <laughs> even as a parent, there's, there's going to be limits um, as, far as, as far as that relationship. But Ultimately, it's very, very subtle, 
and the danger is very subtle here. And I think it's, it's actually destructive for Christians to adopt this, this mentality, and I'll explain why. So let's break this down. Let's understand it from a biblical perspective, and let's cling to that which is good out of any truth that's in there. Um, now, I think to be, to be, to be fair about it um, and to really understand it, as far as the way I think about it, you have to kind of look at the origins of this, look, look at the history. So where does this idea come from that there's nothing you can do? You are totally incapable. You are totally unable. Um, there's no action you can take that's going to make you more uh, righteous or make God love you more, or there's nothing at all that you can do that will ever make him stop uh, loving you. Where, where do these concepts come from? Well, if you look at history, it really comes from uh, the roots of this idea are rooted in Reformed theology. Now, those are fancy words to say the Protestant Reformation. So the Catholic Church was the dominant, uh, the dominant religion, uh, of course. There was a whole history around that, and Rome made that the, the national religion and all these things, and so it developed and it grew more in power, grew more in strength, and there was a lot of issues with the Roman Catholic system. Um, you know, and that's a whole another subject for another, another time. But Roman Catholicism was teaching that you could do certain things and you can gain favor in the eyes of the church and you can gain status and there are certain things that you could do to remove your sins that went outside of the scriptures. So by the 15th century, the Roman Catholic Church got to a point of selling indulgences. Now, indulgences is a free pass. Think about it that way. It's a free pass to be forgiven of your sins. You've done something wrong. You've done something terrible. You're going to end up in purgatory, or you're going to lose your salvation. But you can pay money for a permission slip to commit sin, or you know, if you go and commit sin and you need to, that absolved, you can pay money to the Catholic Church. Now, this is all documented. This is in history, and they were raising money for more cathedrals and more, more types of things. It was like a fundraising scheme that they came up with. Um, now, this is obviously wrong to tell somebody you can pay money. I imagine if we, if we did that and said, you know, if, if you put in more money in the collection plate, you're, you're going to get more forgiveness. That's, that's not the, what the Bible teaches at all. That is absolutely wrong. But you can see practices like this, you can kind of see the idea embedded there that there are actions that you can do, there are things that you can do, that will make you more holy, that will make you have more forgiveness, that will bring you closer to God. Now, I, in some ways, rightfully, there was backlash against that. And, you know, it really kind of began with Martin Luther, but there was other people that were involved in the, in the Protestant Reformation. They rejected the ideas that the Catholic Church was, were teaching. And so, in response to the Catholic Church and their fixation on the traditions of the Catholic Church and the, dic the dictates of the Pope and all these things and the, the system of religion with all the rites and the rituals and the things that they came up with that are not found in the New Testament. Uh, there was a backlash against that, rightfully so. And so again, this gave rise to Protestant Reformation. So people like Martin Luther came along, people like Huldrych Zwingli came along, people like John Calvin later came along. So there's a lot that happened uh, that led up to that, but they rejected that. Martin Luther is famous for that 95 thesis, and what that is is 95 things that he found wrong with the Catholic Church. 
and, and said, this is not right. This is not biblical. And so Martin Luther had the mindset of, let's go to the scriptures. And so uh, later, as the Protestant Reformation grew and over time, it wasn't until later that they kind of categorized it and gave the, this name of the five solas, but it was, these are the five things that are foundational to the Protestant Reformation. Um, do I have them listed here? Okay, I thought I had a slide that listed them, but the five solas are uh, basically that's just like a, a like a Latin word that means only, um, and so the five solas were Scripture alone, uh, Christ alone, grace alone, faith alone, and to, to the glory of God alone. Now, on their on their face value, true. That's that's right. I mean, it's really about. God alone and Christ alone and, and all of those things. And it was a... So this movement, the Protestant Reformation, was an answer to a faulty religious system. And that's where these ideas come from. The Roman Catholic Church was saying salvation comes from obedience to Scripture and the Catholic Church and to these modern religions. So they're saying, yeah, let's follow what the Bible teaches. Let's follow the And plus this other stuff. So they're coupling their man-made traditions, the things that they come up with, which are ever-changing, ever-evolving. And you can look through history and see like the different changes and the different edicts that the Pope will give and the different things that he issues. And you know, he, they believe, there's, again, a whole other study, but they believe that the Pope has infallible authority and he speaks as the voice of God on the earth. And so the Pope can create new dictates. He can approve certain things or not approve certain things. We've seen, you see all that kind of stuff happening in the news even today. They approve certain actions or certain behaviors, or they absolve people of certain kinds of sins. And indulgences are actually a still thing, are still a practice that's happening. I was reading about that. I was surprised because I, uh, I didn't realize that, but I was surprised to find that they're still doing the indulgences. You can't buy them, but you can. Uh, for instance, right now, up until I think it's maybe it was just this week, uh, there was a nativity scene that was set up at a specific church, uh, certain cathedral. You could go there and pray in front of it, and then you could earn a, an indulgence. And, and that was the way they, they tell you, the way they tell people is, you can earn that indulgence. And the point is, you've already been forgiven of sins, but you're still facing consequences in this physical world for your temporal sins. And so if you earn this indulgence, then, you know, it's, it's a way to get more forgiveness from the, and, and free from the consequences of those sins broken relationships, etc. You're going to be feeling these effects. Well, so that's what they're doing. They're selling this idea to people that it, you can go and do these certain things and you can get more forgiveness of God. You can get more status. So that's still very much alive. And no wonder there's a backlash to that. That's not right. That's not in the, that's not in the scriptures. I mean, very clearly we can, we can go to examples like the Pharisee and the publican. The Pharisee goes in and says, Lord, I'm fasting five times in the week and I'm tithing and I'm doing all these things. Look how righteous I am. I'm not like this publican. And the publican takes the stance of, I'm, I'm a sinful person. I need you. I need your help. And the publican is justified because that's not how God intends for us to worship him and to serve him, to rack up all of these things. He didn't create some system where there's, you know, you, you get certain, it's not this weighted system where it's like, if you do this action, you get this much grace. And if you do this, you're going to get this much grace. That's how the Pharisees operated. That's very much what the Roman Catholic Church did and is doing, continues to do. <clears throat> now, that was the 
predominant system. Uh, they had control, they had power. I mean, they fought wars uh, to, and, you know, they, they fought f wars against people that were uh, against the Roman Catholics. And then there was another war that came up uh, with the Protestants in the 1600s. It was the Thirty Years' War. And, and, uh, and in, in Ireland, you, you read all about that, where it was like this big fight between Romans, uh, the Catholics and the Protestants. But the Protestants' answer to the Roman Catholic system was two, kind of two branches that emerged. Luther came along, Martin Luther, he came along and he says, we're saved by faith alone through grace alone. And it's offered freely by God. And, you know, it's something that we have to, that God grants for us to, to have access to, but we're saved through faith alone through, by God's grace only. Um, that's kind of the core tenet. The next branch that came along of, of this Reformation theology was Calvinism. And he said, you're saved by God's choice alone. You have no choice. That's a tenet of, Calv of Calvinism. Irresistible grace. Unconditional election. There's no condition under which you can become elect apart from God has chosen you to be elect. And that's where this concept of predestination comes from. God has predetermined who is going to be saved and who is not. That's, that's, it comes from these Calv this Calvinist idea. Now, uh, that, that's the branches. So what you can see is that these ideas of there's nothing you can do, there's no action you can take, there's no uh, way that you can fall from God's grace or you, there's no way that you can make God stop loving you. It all sounds good, but when you put it in the proper frame and understand it, it's really just a response to the way the Roman Catholics were conducting Christianity and what they had formed. And so we need to move outside of these two competing systems and look at what God says. Let's look to the scriptures alone. Let's look to what the Bible teaches us, because if, if we're just caught in a counter-movement uh, to fight against the idea of works and all these things and lump everything that the Bible teaches, because that's what happens. Uh, because of this problem, this arose and created another problem. Now, anytime you point to, that, that has been such an influential system that people still are very, very deeply rooted and really, really deeply passionately connected to that, and I understand why, uh, because it's true. We, 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 we can't be saved by, uh, we can't be saved by some rules that we make up or some tradition that we create on our own. We can't, but we can be saved by the things that God has given us to do. We can be saved by the works that He has defined and that He has designed. And so, to look at what the Bible teaches, commandments that God gives, and lump them into works and put them in this category of the Roman Catholic idea and say works-based salvation is wrong, well, that creates a whole other problem because you're going to find yourself in a position on, on either of these where that's just outside of what the Scriptures show and what the Scriptures teach. Now, it's interesting because if you read Martin Luther's writings, there's a lot of stuff you're like, yeah, that makes sense. You agree with that. Uh, but and I don't think he intended it for evolve into what it's evolved to today. But let's fast forward several hundred years now. And people have really latched on to that idea that there's nothing you can do. And so a lot of Christian-based religions are heavily influenced by this. And they regurgitate these Reformation doctrines. And they've evolved and swung even way further uh, as a counter-movement to this Roman Catholic 
understanding an idea, and understandably so, everybody's going to lump anything that's, that is different into that because it's just so prominent, it's so popular. That's what people know and what people think of. Um, and, it, and it's caused so many problems. It has caused absolutely so, many, so much confusion and so many problems. And it makes me think of, of, of the, uh, in James, it says the double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. And I think what this has caused largely in the world is people who are double-minded because you don't know. Is this an action that I can take or is this not an action I can take? And when you do something, you feel guilty. And if you don't, then you feel guilty. So it really causes a lot of issues. And so that's why we need to move outside of that. But the, there are, it's still being perpetuated. And here's how. People a lot, I hear this so much. You talk to anybody, you talk to people, this is what they're being taught in churches. You don't have to keep rules. There's no rules. There's no, there's no guidebook. I had a conversation with a guy, and a series of conversations with him, and he, was, he would say this kind of stuff, and I would gently question and ask that, and it just doesn't make any sense to me knowing what, <laughs> knowing what the scriptures show, but you hear these phrases like that, or you don't have to check off boxes, I don't want a faith where I'm checking off boxes, or there's no laws you have to obey, Right? This one, it's a little more subtle. I'm spiritual, but I'm not religious. And that has led to this other idea that God hates religion. Well, all of these are, all of these make sense if it's a counter to the Roman Catholic system. It makes sense. Uh, But is that what the scriptures teach? That's the primary question. Because I think ultimately what people are searching for is freedom. They're searching for freedom from, maybe it's guilt, maybe it's shame, maybe it's this, you know, this pressure from some man-made system where you're either going to pass or fail based on what men think about you. People are searching for freedom from that, and rightly so, but we're only getting freedom from responsibility, and that is not freedom at all. If we are free from responsibility, that is not freedom at all. Um, in fact, in, in, yeah, in fact, it makes us enslaved to some system where it's really totally out of your hands. It's totally out of your control. You have no say. You have no agency. You have no free will. You have no power in, in the situation. And it leads to all kinds of other, other things. But some so staunchly believe this, there's nothing you can do to make, you love, to make God love you more or make you less in this framework that this has led them to reject the Bible altogether. Why do you think there's so many Protestant Reformation churches that are so deeply entrenched in this that are now LGBTQ affirming? And they accept it and tell people, you can, be, you can be part of that and live that way and have those actions, and you're fine. You can still be a Christian. It's okay. And that's just one example. I'm not just honing in on that, but that's just an obvious one. There's a lot of free passes being given to people and there's no responsibility, there's no accountability, there's no calling people to a higher standard that the scriptures give us. And instead it's like, don't worry, God's, it's okay, you can do whatever you want. And if you don't think that's, that's real, that's really out there. That's, it, is, it is absolutely wild. And it's like, you can do no wrong. And they treat God like this passive parent who just is getting run over by his kids. And, you know, it's like, oh, we're his children, but we can do whatever we want. Oh, he's going to love you no matter what. Doesn't matter what you do, we're just gonna keep loving you. And they 
they impose this, this passive and weak idea that God doesn't have these limits and God isn't going to uh, be frustrated by the fact that we commit sin. But it's led to that. And again, uh, I was studying with a guy about this, and he would say this kind of stuff. And uh, it got to the point where I was just pointing to the Bible and said, okay, well, what about this? Because it's confusing. Okay, well, the Bible says this. The Bible says this. And uh, he reached over and just, just closed the Bible and was like, I don't want to hear that. I was like, that's actually happened to me twice. <laughs> Two different conversations. When you point people to the Bible, they don't want to hear it. And, and uh, it's sad because it's like we need to hear it. That's what we need to hear. And he didn't hear what he wanted to hear. And I wasn't going to affirm a position that said there's, there's nothing we can do. There's no way to live. There's no way to walk in Christ because there is. And, you know, and, and I, I understood some of his frustration. I understood some of his points. But, you know, to, to reach over and close the Bible was very, very telling uh, to me. And so this idea is extremely subtle. And, and I believe it's dangerous because it gives people the wrong kind of freedom. It gives you freedom from responsibility. Now, it feels nice. It feels, oh, we don't have this burden on us. We don't have these expectations and all that. But again, that's not real freedom, and that's not what God has called us to. And I think that as Christians, we should reject this idea. Just without, without any shadow of doubt, we should just reject that idea that there's nothing you can do and embrace instead a biblical idea that there's something that God has made you responsible to do. That's the idea that we ought to promote, and that's the idea that we ought to, to have. And this really comes from the way God created us in the first place, in the garden. Let's go back to the very beginning. When he created man, in Genesis 2.15, the Lord God took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to dress it and to keep it. He gave Adam and Eve a job to do. He gave them responsibility and said, this is the garden. It's your job to keep it, to dress it and to keep it. It's your job to take care of this. He gave us something to take care of. He gave us an action to do. He gave us work to do. And, and that instilled purpose in mankind. God created us with a purpose, and that purpose is to act, and that purpose is to take care of what He has made and what He's given us. He's made mankind owners and responsible co-owners of this creation. And if you look back to uh, chapter 1 when it describes God making Adam and Eve, and this applies to both men and women, we're made in God's image, and notice the responsibility, the charge, Genesis 1.28. God blessed them and said to them, meant Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth and subdue it. Bring it into subjection and have dominion over the fish and the fowls and everything that's on the earth. God created the world and put man in charge of it and said, take care of it. You're responsible for overseeing this. You're responsible for having dominion. And he granted them power and authority. The power and authority did not come from them, true, but he placed them into, he didn't place them into an eternal vacation where it's like, oh, you're in paradise, just sit back, relax, have your fill, eat, drink, and be merry. No, he put them to work. Now, the work got worse, of course, after sin, sin came and it, and it became uh, just terrible, but, but he placed us into work. He, he gave them work to do and gave them responsibility to carry out a purpose. He gave them commandments even to obey. When you look at the garden, God put forth edicts. He put forth commandments that came from him based on his knowledge of good and evil, based on his definition of what is good and what is evil, and gave man 
the boundaries to live by. And he says in Genesis 2, 16 through 17, the Lord God commanded the man saying, of every tree of the garden, you may freely eat. So God granted him permission, eat whatever you want in the garden. But the tree of knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat of it. And the day that you do, you will surely die. So right there, God issues a commandment. He gives them parameters and it has consequences. And so the responsibility that Adam has is to make a choice. Am I going to choose to follow God's commandment or not? Am I going to choose to eat of the fruit that he, he, he put off limits or not? Now, there's risk. There's a lot of risk here with freedom. And God knows that. He gave mankind this freedom, and He opened up the possibility of them committing sin. He didn't create sin, but He opened up the possibility because it's, He put the choice on Adam. Eat it or don't eat this. That was the expectation. And so he was responsible for that. And he was responsible to make the right choice. And the way we know that is because there's accountability now built into that. And that's the key thing about responsibility. Accountability comes with it. We are going to give an account for, the, for it. We are going to experience a result or a consequence that, that comes from the choice that we make that's born out of the responsibility that we've been given. God didn't create man and just make us these pre-programmed robots, and we're going to do these exact things that God has already determined, and He's the one that's in control. He is in control ultimately, but, but He didn't make this situation where man was just this empty shell that was just puppets, that we're just going to do whatever. No. God said, Here's, you're made in my image. I'm giving you power. I'm giving you authority. I'm granting you these things. He's the source of it, absolutely. But he lets man operate within that. And the expectation is you live within the boundaries that God sets. It's very clear when you look at it from the way that we're created. Now, the idea that there's nothing that you can do or not do that will make God love you less and all that, that doesn't come from God. It sounds great, but that comes from man. And we kind of see that same message, that same core idea at play in the garden because God created responsibility, but Satan comes along to destroy responsibility. In Genesis chapter 3, 4 through 5, it says, the serpent said to the woman, you're not going to die. That's not what God said. He said, if you eat it, you're going to die. You're accountable now. There's a consequence. Satan says, no, you're not going to die. It's very, very subtle. But by removing the consequence, removing any accountability, he steals and robs them of their responsibility to honor God and to follow him. Because if it doesn't matter, nothing's going to happen to you. Nothing bad is going to happen. There's nothing you can do to make God stop loving you. Well, okay. It makes sense then in that, in that framework. If that's the case, okay, I'll eat of the fruit. It's a good thing. Or it's not, it's not good or bad. It's just, it just is. And it's not going to make God unhappy with me. And so removing consequences removed accountability. What's the point of abstaining? You don't have to listen to God because there's no actual punishment. There's nothing you can do to die. And so instead of using their power that God granted them to choose correctly, instead they used that power to act, and they broke His commandments, and they cast off their responsibility to be like God and to preserve holiness and to promote holiness and to be fruitful and multiply in holiness. Um, and 
that rejection of God's law, the, the choice to break the commandment and eat of the fruit, is the very definition of sin. In 1 John 3, that's what John, John wrote. He says, whoever commits sin transgresses the law because sin is transgression of the law. So to commit sin means to transgress or to break the law, go above and, and beyond outside of the, those boundaries that God has set. When we do that, we are committing sin. And that's exactly what happened in the garden. They were like, okay, we'll do it. And they committed sin. And so not having responsibility, not taking responsibility, not taking the accountability seriously, and those consequences led to sin, being in the world. And so, you, so you, right there, we can really, I hope that we can really deeply see the problem with not taking responsibility, not having responsibility. It causes destruction in our lives. It caused destruction in this world. And this idea that there's nothing that you can do, it really, really undercuts what God has designed. It really undercuts God's will. Because it is extremely important for us to have responsibility. And, and why is it so important? Why does it matter so much that we understand this and that we see this from the Scriptures because with responsibility and, and what naturally comes with that, accountability, you're going to care more about it. I mean, think about it this way. Think about the mindset of a, a renter versus somebody who owns it. If you're renting a car, let's say you're renting the car for a week, something happens, you only care because it's impacting you, but you don't really care. It's not your responsibility to take care of the vehicle, the maintenance, and all that. Sure, you, you're bound by the contract to, to you know, do certain things and not destroy it and all that kind of stuff. But ultimately, you don't really care because it's not yours. You know that at the end of the week, I'm going to take it back. It's going to be dirty as sin, and it's, they're going to clean it. <laughs> I worked at a car rental place. We, there, was some, there was some doozies for sure. You know, I come back dirty. There's trash in there. People don't care. It's not theirs. Um, you know, uh, well, and if that's the standard, I guess you'd look at ours and think, we don't care because, you know, we have kids and all, but, <laughs> but I think you get the point. It's like somebody else is going to take care of this. I can outsource this responsibility and you're paying for that. Now, if you're the owner of the car, you really care more. You, you have to make sure that it's running. You have to make sure you're taking care of the maintenance. You have to do more because it's yours. You have to, you have to properly take care of that. Same, same thing with, you know, same thing with anything. When it's yours, when it belongs to you, when you're the one who is responsible, when you're the one who is accountable for the outcome, you're going to care a lot more. You're going to actually put more effort into it, and, and it's going to change. It's going to change everything. Jesus said in Luke 12, 48, to, for unto, whom, unto whomsoever much is given, of him much shall be required. If God gives us something, if we have responsibility, there is something great required of us. And spoiler alert, we all have responsibility. There's a lot that's required of each one of us, no matter who we are. We have responsibility to honor God, and He requires that. And to whom men have committed much, of them they will ask more. And it's kind of interesting, the more responsibility we take, the more ownership we take, the more we're going to be given. And that's just kind of how it works, but it leads to greater and greater opportunity, greater uh, responsibility, rather, and a greater sense of, of, of 
drive and of purpose and of meaning in our life. We have to have responsibility. And if we don't, and we act like a renter and just don't care about our faith, Luke 16, 12, if you have not been faithful in that which is another man's, who will give you that which is your own? Because what we're doing in this world, yes, it belongs to God. It's His. But He's granted us uh, a sense of ownership over these things. He's granted us a sense, not, not to where we become prideful and we're like, this is mine and this isn't God's. No, not like that. But He's given you responsibility to oversee things, the blessings that He's given you. And if we can't be faithful in that, how can we expect Him to give us more? How can we expect Him to give us eternal life if we can't handle this life? That's the point. And we're building up treasure in heaven, and how can we get access to those things? How could we, how could we ever expect God to give us those kinds of blessings if we are incapable of taking responsibility now in this life for the things that we have done? And so the mindset of, well, I'm just gonna, there's nothing I can do. I can just sit back. Oh, I don't have to follow anything. I don't have to obey anything. It steals your responsibility. It robs you. It robs you of, of a deeper sense of meaning and purpose and of care for following God and having a, a strengthened relationship with Him. And I want to make it really clear that the biblical idea, promote, rejecting the idea that there's nothing you can do and instead promoting responsibility because there is something that you have been given to do by God, it is not a replacement for God. It cannot be. It is absolutely, that is unbiblical to think that because we're taking ownership, because we're taking a, a sense of greater care and responsibility, that somehow that means I'm the one that's, that designed the process, I'm the one that designed the materials, I'm the one that, that owns it and, and created these things. No, we're just the creation, right? So it doesn't replace God and it does not diminish Him in some way. In fact, it honors Him more if we understand this. Uh, Paul said this in 2 Corinthians 3, verse 5. He says, not that we, and this is from the ESV, uh, not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is of God. So the proper biblical view is not uh, we create the rules. No, we work within the rules and work within the things that God has created and that God has given us. He's the source. He's the foundation of all. These things didn't come from us. Obeying His will, I mean, it's not like we designed His will, and then we're like, okay, this is what we need to obey. No. He made His will known to us through the revelation of the Scriptures, and we have a choice in the matter. And so the Word, of, the word and the will of God come from Him, not from us. And so anything that we're responsible for doing is rooted in God's design. And again, I want to make it really clear, really plain, because people are so, they, they viscerally react to this. I actually heard a sermon uh, once before when I was researching this topic of why people, like, I'm trying to understand what people mean when they say workspace salvation. And I heard this guy give a sermon, and he was, like, mad. He was angry and kind of yelling in, in, the, in their pulpit. And he was saying, there's nothing you can do. To the, and he believed that to the point that repentance, you choosing to turn from your sins, robbed God of His power and His glory. And so he says, no, you can't even repent. And the fact that you choose to turn away from sin, in fact, he was saying the Bible does not teach repentance from sin. And I was just like, what? That's not true. God, God wants all men everywhere to repent and come to Him. That's what Peter said in, first, in, in Acts chapter 10. 
That's the message that Paul gave. We have to choose to turn away from the darkness and come to the light. Satan has blinded our minds so that we wouldn't see it, but God brings the light so that we can see it and can go to Him and come to Him, and He wants us to come to Him. And so, so all that, that to say, just because we're acknowledging that we have responsibility in the matter does not in any way mean that we're trying to lean on our own power, we're trying to lean on our own understanding, or that our salvation is based on merit, on the fact that we can be a certain amount of good or righteous and then we, we then qualify for salvation. That's not how it works. That's not what the Scriptures teach. Um, we wouldn't know what to do without God having told us what to do. It comes from Him, not from us. We wouldn't be saved without God having been the one that cleansed us. He's the one that, he's the one that carries out uh, salvation in that, in that sense of, of actually performing the cleansing. It's, it's Him. So it's not possible without Him. And that's what Jesus meant in John 15, verse 5. He says, I'm the vine, you are the branches. He that abides in me and I in him, the same will bring forth much fruit. For without me, you can do nothing. So it's true. This, in, in this framework, understanding that if we are trying to operate outside of God, we, can do, we can't accomplish anything. We're not going to produce anything. But if we're squarely rooted in the understanding and concept that we're working within God's design, we're working with his, within His framework, Him as the foundation, Him as the source, and we're carrying out responsibility, then we can do something. We can produce fruit. And God expects that from us. He wants you to produce fruit, else we cannot be His disciples. And He's not going to produce the fruit for you. He's not going to make you productive in that sense. Like, like He's the one that's going to carry it out for you. Like He will bless and He will give the increase. He will give the fruit. But as far as sowing, why did Jesus say, put your hand to the plow? If you turn back, then you're not worthy of the kingdom. Because God knows and has communicated very clearly, we have something to be responsible for. We need to put our hand to the plow and cultivate and subdue what God has ordained us to, be, uh, to have dominion over. And that is our, our lives, our our conduct, our choices. So what is it that we're responsible for? There's a lot that we could spend time talking about, but I want to talk about just a few things. First of all, you are responsible for you. You're responsible for your actions. Each one of us are going to be accountable for what we've chosen to do or not do. Paul said it very clearly, very plainly. It's unmistakable. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 10. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that everyone may receive the things done in his body according to that he hath done, whether it be good or whether it be bad. We're all going to give an account, and there's parable after parable of Jesus talking about this, the servants that he gives authority over, the stewards that he places as, as, uh, as authorized to take care of the master's goods. When the master comes back, he says, give an account. I've heard you haven't been doing things well you're going to give an account of the things that you've been doing with my stuff. And so God's made us responsible for something, and we're going to give an account for how we've treated that and how we've carried that out, whether it's good or whether it's bad. We're all going to stand before God on the day of judgment, and we're going to, we're going to have to answer for, why did you do this? Or why did you not do this? And that should, that should compel us that should spark some, a sense of 
concern in our lives and go, oh, I need to care about this because I'm going to have to answer for it. And we want to stand before the throne with a clear conscience. We want to stand before the throne without condemnation in our, in our minds and hearts, going, you know what? I didn't do as much as I could have. You know, I didn't try as much as I could have. I didn't, I didn't follow God the way I needed to. We don't need that. We, we want to stand, and this is also in First John, uh, there's, in that book, there's a lot of writings there, but he says we want to stand before God with a heart that is not condemning ourselves already. We want to know when we stand before him, we gave it our all. And, and it's not like, oh, therefore I earned it. No, it's like, I want to have peace when I stand before the throne. Colossians chapter 3, 25, he said that he that does wrong will receive for the wrong that he hath done. There's no respect of persons. This, this completely runs counter to the ideas that we're, that we're talking about that comes from, well, it comes from both, the Roman Catholic system and the Protestant Reformation system. It, run, it, comes, it runs completely counter to all of that. We're going to receive for the things that we have done. And there's no respect of persons. Um, you know, so we may think that there's nothing we can do to lose God's love or God's favor, but now ultimately it doesn't mean that he doesn't love us, but he's going to carry out punishment. And that doesn't, it's like disciplining your kids. Just because I might spank my kids or might impose some kind of punishment, that does not mean I don't love them. I do that because I love them, because I want them to, achieve, to I want them to work within the boundaries of, of what we've decided in our home as, you know, the, the way our family's going to conduct itself, within the boundaries of godliness, obviously. But that's, that's what we're calling them to do. And uh, punishment is not a, uh, punishment and, and discipline is not a bad thing. That's a good thing, ultimately, and it has to be carried out. Um, so we're responsible for the choices that we make, the decisions that you make in your life, the sins that you commit in, your, in this life, you are responsible for that. The bad things that we do, it's on you. Nobody else. And you're going to answer for God, to God for that. Now, He has given us and granted us the responsibility to choose life or continue in death by doing things that are not good, by, by choosing to follow evil. You know, you can look at the law of Moses and see this. This is, this is what the core idea of God giving them the law was. You can choose to follow me. And this is what Moses said to them. I call heaven and earth to record against you this day, that I have, I have set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. How did he do that? How did, how did Moses set before them life or death? These, these two options. It was through the law that God gave him. God said, communicate this to my people. Here's the framework. Here's the, here's the design of it. Here's the reasons. Here's the things that you should do. And you get to decide whether you're going to follow that or not. And so Moses gave them the commandment and said, the choice is yours. Do you want to live or do you want to die? It's the same thing going back to the garden. That's the choice. Do you want to follow God's commandment and stay away from the tree and live? Or do you want to exercise that power and responsibility to eat the fruit and die? God's not going to choose for you. Counter to the, the deeply held views of John Calvin and the influence it has in this world, God's not going to decide for you. You have to decide. And that's not taking away any power from God. 
that, that instead is honoring him. And Moses said, since that's the case, this is before you, uh, choose life. Choose life. So that you, you might live and that your seed may live, so that you may love the Lord and that you may obey his voice and that you may cleave to him because he is thy life in the length of thy days. Moses made it really clear that the, the commandments that God gives us is a choice between life and death, and the choice is yours. He's not going to decide. He wants you to love him and obey him and follow him, and he wants you to live. Now, if he forced you to obey, I mean, what kind of, what kind of relationship is that? If you were forced to obey you know, we, we rejected that as a country, right? Slavery. Put people in bondage and said, you're going to do everything I tell you, and I own you. God doesn't work that way. He gives us choice. He gives us freedom. He gives us responsibility. And when it comes to our salvation, God wants you to choose life, but it's you that has to choose. He's not going to impose it on you. He's not going to force you to belong to Him. If you don't want to be in His house, you don't want to be in His family, okay. He, doesn't, he hates that, doesn't want that. He wants you to be part of his family. He invites you in. Think about the prodigal son. Did the father, when the son said, you know, give me all that's mine, and I'm going to go, I'm going to leave. Did the father say, no, I'm going to chain you to, to, in your room. I'm going to lock you in your room. You're not going anywhere. You're going to do exactly what I say. You're going to stay here because this is where you belong. He didn't say that. He gave him freedom and said, okay. And then he waited and hoped for that child to return. And did the father run out and go chase him down and drag him out of that far country and drag him kicking and screaming home? No. He waited and that child decided, he came to his senses and he decided, I'm going to go back to my father. He made a choice. And then he starts heading back to the father and then the father sees him and runs to him. So, so God will meet us and help us, but he's not going to force us at all. And that's what Paul said in Romans 16, verse, uh, Romans, well, it's missing. Uh, in Romans 16, he said that, 16 and 17, he says, Don't you know that to who you yield yourself as a servant to obey, that's whose servant you are, whether life, uh, whether sin unto death or obedience unto righteousness. He says, God bethink that you were the servants, but you have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine that was delivered. God brought salvation to Jew and Gentile alike in Christ, and he says, God be think that you decided to obey him because the choice is yours all along. You can decide whether you're going to be a slave to sin or you can decide whether you're going to be uh, a child of the resurrection and a child of righteousness. That's up to you. And again, there's warnings like Hebrews 2. He says, thinking about the Old Testament, if the word spoken by angels was sure, it was steadfast, it was certain, and every sin and disobedience received a just reward or recompense of reward, if that was the case for the Old Testament, how are we going to escape punishment? How are we going to escape judgment if we neglect so great of a salvation that was spoken by Christ and confirmed by his apostles? And there's more that he goes on to say, but how are we going to escape wrath if we decide to neglect the word? It's very clear. And choosing life does not mean that we're saving ourselves. Again, I want to make it plain. Titus 3 verse 5 says that he saved us not because of righteous things that we have done. We didn't come up with some system and said, oh, here's the righteous acts that God is going to be pleased with. That's idolatry. If we are the ones that come up with the, the rules and say, if we do that, God's going to be happy, that's idol worship. But instead, we've done, we've done what He has asked. 
And it's because of His mercy that we've been given that information. And He saved us through the washing of, of rebirth and renewal of the Holy Spirit. He's washed us and cleansed us in the way that He has deemed fit. And if we, if we conform to that, then we'll be saved. And if we choose not to, then we won't. And if we're in Christ, the next thing we're responsible for is doing the will of the Father. You know, there's a lot of people that think they're in Christ and following Him, but Christ doesn't even know them. And He makes that clear in Matthew 7. Not everyone that just says, Lord, and calls me Lord, is going to enter into heaven, but the one that does the will of my Father, which is in heaven. You want to go to heaven, you want to please God, do the will of the Father. Doing something is not evil. Doing something is not stealing anything from God. Doing something is not wrong. In fact, it's right. And it is built on the foundation of God's will. We must do His will, or we won't be saved. And if we decide to come up with our own righteous things, and even though it might look similar, even though it might make us feel good, even though it might sound good, like, oh, we're going to prophesy and teach in your name. We're going to cast out devils in your name. We're going to do many wonderful works in your name. I will profess to them, I never knew you. I don't know who you are. You never belonged to me in the first place because you weren't following my will. You were following yours. He says, depart from me, you that work iniquity. Why would it be iniquity for these people who are doing good things in the name of Christ? It's because they were doing it outside of Christ. They're doing it outside of the will of the Father. So we can't be saved by our own works. Not at all. We can be saved by God's works. And if we keep his words, he will love us. John 14, 23, Jesus answered and said, if a man love me, he will keep my words. And if that's the case, my father will love him and we will come to him and make our abode with him. You want your life to be with God? You want to be closer to God? Love him and keep his commandments. Obey his will. Because you love him, because you're responsible, because you're accountable. Not out of fear and not out of not out of dread, though that should partly be a, a bit of motivation for sure. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. So take it seriously. Um, and that means obeying Him. In Romans 6.14, he says, Sin will not have dominion over you. You're not under the law, but under grace. What then? Shall we commit sin because we're not under the law, but we're under grace? God forbid. Paul said no. And out of, and And... Again, the scriptures reject the ideas that the Protestant Reformation put forward. That because you're under grace, there's nothing that you need to do. Now, Paul, in fact, there's a greater responsibility if we're in Christ. There's a much greater responsibility to not commit sin. We don't get a free pass. Because if we think that we will and we can do whatever and we're never going to lose our salvation and God's never going to be unhappy with us, then that, again, is an idea that is not in the scriptures. It runs counter to the scriptures. 2 Peter 2, verse 20 says, If after you have escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus, you are again entangled and overcome of sin, the latter end is worse than the beginning. Why? Because you've chosen to walk away from God. You've chosen to go back into sin that He has cleansed you from. It had been better for you to not have known the way of righteousness than after you've known it to turn from the holy commandment delivered to you. The concepts of Roman Catholicism, the concepts of Protestant Reformation are counter to what the Scriptures teach. And again, just to, to summarize really quickly, the, the modern nothing doctrines, there's nothing you can do to be saved, there's nothing you can do to 
please God or not please Him. There's nothing you can do to make Him love you more or not make Him love you more. Those modern nothing doctrines will undercut God's will, just like Satan in the garden did. Because it removes all consequence. It removes all weight. It just doesn't matter. It's not a weighty thing for us to follow God or not. And, and ultimately, it takes away responsibility from you. Because there's no skin. It just steals your purpose. Right? No, you're not responsible for anything. God's the one who's responsible for everything. You don't have a choice in the matter. There's nothing you can do. That doesn't sound, that doesn't sound great. So don't let, don't let your responsibility stolen from you. Ultimately, it removes accountability because you're not going to have any skin in the game. What's the consequence? There's none. You won't die. It's fine. It's not going to matter. It's not on me. You hear people say that kind of stuff all the time. It's not on me. It destroys your growth and your maturity. You know, the, the Bible in Hebrews 5.14 says that by reason of use, we will grow and mature to, to exercise our senses to discern between good and evil. But there's no point. Why exercise anything? Why do anything? Why carry out any of God's will and grow in maturity? We're not. We're going to stay stunted. We're going to stay weak. We're going to stay immature. Thinking about Miguel's lesson, we're going to be, we're going to be physically and age, aged, and we're going to have all these life experiences, but spiritually we might still be in diapers because it just doesn't matter, right? There's no use. Believing, ultimately, that there's nothing you can do is going to lead you to a place where there's truly nothing you can do because it'll be too late. So take, take, I hope that, that we can see from the scriptures that God has a different idea of what we are responsible for. And it's not true that there's nothing we can do. There is something that you can do. And that something is to yield yourself in obedience to the will of God. Give up our, our idolatry. Give up these doctrines that have originated from men and have devolved into more sin because sin is just going to produce more sin. And instead... Turn to the Word and let that produce righteousness in you. God will choose to... God's, God has invited us to His salvation. It's up to us to take those steps and come to the wedding feast. It's up to us to be good servants. It's up to us to be good stewards. Carry out your responsibility. And if, if you're here this morning and you want to make that choice, you want to choose to enter into this invitation of being washed and being clean, Christ invites you to be baptized into Christ. That's the design that God made. That's not work. It's not a work-based salvation. It's a work that God has designed. It's a work that He carries out. But we have to take those steps and decide to repent of our sins, to believe in Him, to, to let Him save us. Because we're totally dependent on Him. We're not going to be saved otherwise. If we think we can get by by being a good person, and that's not going to work. But obeying God will. And maybe you're a Christian this morning, and you need support, you need help, and you feel helpless and you want things that you can do. You want, you want to accept that responsibility and carry, out the, carry that out further and take on more. But God invites you to that as well. And so I hope, the, I hope that it's been encouraging to you. I hope that it's been fruitful for you. And if you have a need, please don't feel any shame. We're not here to tear each other down and judge each other and try to you know, make people feel uh, ridiculous for asking for help. We're here to as your servants, as your family in Christ, help you and lift you up. That's the only way we're going to, to, to succeed um, in this world is, is by 
encouraging each other to follow God. So that's what we're here to do. If you need help this morning, we're here to support you in the ways that you need as we stand and sing this song. Just come forward and have a seat at the front. We hope you enjoyed this teaching from God's Word. If there's anything we can do to help you in your walk with Christ, send us a message at facebook.com slash cfcnwa. To find more sermons, look for us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and like our Facebook page. Thanks for listening, and God bless.